To flourish is to maintain a functional level of mental health, pure and simple. What does that mean? That means to be able to confront, handle obstacles, setbacks, with a degree of resilience to be able to emotionally process difficult experiences in healthy ways, such as by reaching out, disclosing, talking about our experience rather than seeking addictive substances. But more even than that, flourishing is the ability to uh, seek and explore the world and uh, pursue possibilities, opportunities, to be able to grow and expand one's skills and one's creative endeavors. If we look at Ab Abraham Maslow's famous existentialist idea about human needs, the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization, which means thinking outside of the box, being able to embrace life, find fulfillment, find meaning. All of that is the sort of ultimate expression of mental health. And so to flourish is to be moving in that direction. On the other hand, languishing is what is contrasted with flourishing. And languishing is when we are moving away from opportunities, uh, shutting out people, um, moving towards new challenges with pessimism rather than optimism, refraining from opportunities to grow, where we view life as hollow and empty of meaning. So, there's, in this uh, positive psychology sense, flourishing versus languishing is an idea of mental health that's free from the usual rubric of pathologizing people as having personality disorders, and it takes a kind of more existential approach, which is you're either moving towards fulfillment, meaning, self-actualization, creativity, or you're moving away from it, which is languishing. Barbara Fredrickson, who's one of the great evolutionary psychologists, she's uh, written a number of books, including Love 2.0, and, and she's one of the main principal architects in contemporary psychology, uh, who focuses on the role of positive emotions and flourishing in life. Now, up until Barbara Fredrickson, a lot of people struggled to um, make sense of what was the evolutionary purpose of positive emotions. It's very easy to figure out the evolutionary purpose of negative emotions. Negative emotions, by the way, as defined by psychology, is an emotional impulse that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, or the sympathetic nervous system, excuse me, creates a survival activation where we change our breath, where cortisol is released, where the body goes into a tense, contracted state, and all, all negative emotions narrow, I'm going to say this again, narrow, our behavioral lexicon. It gets rid of our choices and pushes us towards one action. So for instance, if you feel angry, the impulse of anger is pushing you to do one thing, which is to fight or to become aggressive or to, you know, to, to stand up against something. If you become frightened or scared, the impulse is to push you 
to narrow your behavioral uh, possibilities to the, to the choice of simply running, fleeing, hiding, getting away. If you feel sad, the behavioral impulse is pushing you towards a contracted state where we look inwardly and we reflect on losses. If you feel guilt or shame because you've acted in ways that have selfishly um, worked against an individual that you have an attachment with or to the tribe to which you belong, then the emotions of guilt and shame push us to make reparations, amends, and to uh, act in a different way, in pro-social ways. So all negative emotions, they change the body towards a defended, contracted state, they change the breath, and they push us to a single action that enhances our chances of survival. And so that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective why we have negative emotions, because all of those impulses help save our ass. They push us to connect with other people. They push us to protect our connections and protect ourselves. But what about positive emotions? What's the evolutionary reason we've developed the ability to feel joy, to feel happiness, to feel contentment, to feel ease, to feel a sense of tranquility? Why do we have positive emotions? It would seem to serve a limited evolutionary advantage until we reflect on the fact that we are social beings. We are pack animals. We survive because we make alliances. That's the sum total of what makes human beings, our species, so successful, is that we bond well. And in bonding, we overcome adversity and threats. So positive emotions are the emotions that allow us, encourage us, to, one, deactivate our defensive survival settings, our anger, our fear, our sadness. It encourages us to relax because when you are in a positive emotions, instead of the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, what happens is it deactivates using first the parasympathetic and then it deactivates. So the breath relaxes, the muscles relax, the shoulders relax, the exhalations get longer. But more importantly than that, Barbara Fredrickson showed that positive emotional states broaden the behaviors, the actions that we can respond to other people with. It doesn't push us in a single way. So if I'm happy... I could respond to that in a lot of different ways. I could sing, I could dance, I could smile, I could do a little jig, I could laugh, I could... There's unlimited ways I can express happiness. And there's unlimited ways I can express joy to you. It, in, in essence, positive emotions is what she called broaden our behavioral <coughs> vocabulary. So when you're happy... It makes you unpredictable. It makes you open to more spontaneous choices. It makes you, in essence, far more authentic and far more freedom of choice when you are actually truly happy because you're not driven. You, you have freedom of, of choice when you feel safe, happy, connected. Uh, then you can choose between various different ways to express that. There's a lot of additional benefits. 
Whereas all of the negative emotions have their role in helping us survive and pushing us to socialize in their own way, positive emotions increase our longevity. Studies by Leibomorsky, Kahneman, Haidt, Davidson, Donner, Levy, and Moskowitz show, these are all different studies, show that positive affect speeds our ability to recover from injury, recover after operations. Um, people who meet certain milestones, consistent positive emotions, tend to live significantly longer than people who don't meet those ratios. While we're flourishing, due to reaching a certain level of positive emotions, we're far more likely to make new connections with different groups. We're far more likely to become aware of the environment that we're in and pick up environmental awareness. And those awareness we have when we're positive are far more accurate, studies show, than when people are pessimistic and cynical. When people are pessimistic and cynical, you could show them an image and they won't see literally half of it because they will simply look towards the negatives and they will look towards what they expect to see. When somebody is in a positive emotion, they look at images and situations with far less predispositions. So when you're in, you're flourishing due to positive emotional states, you're far more likely to see the world accurately. And that's, of course, a benefit to you. Now, all emotions are transient. and In other words, all emotions pass. But the resources that we accrue during times of positivity and flourishing last for significantly long periods of time, and they create resources that allow us to feel buoyant and optimistic when we face difficult challenges. So even if you can't use uh, practices that instill positive emotions right now, in the future there's a great likelihood that you'll be able to uh, utilize those reserves. So it's easy anyway to hear all this and think, oh great, just give me some of that positivity. Cut to the chase. Just show me how to be happy. And I'm going to explain why it's not that simple and why that falls into a trap. Before we get to that, I'll just conclude this section by saying that um, we all have in addition to positive and negative emotions, which all have their efficacy, they all play their role. Again, negative emotions push us very quickly to survival actions that diminish our choices. Positive emotions allow us to relax, open up, be vulnerable, connect, and see the world, and take in new information. So both, all emotions have their purpose. But the brain is negativity bias. When you are in a negative emotional state, you are significantly more likely to deeply embed memories than if you're in a positive emotion or you see something that is, could activate positive emotions. It takes about a half a second to remember a frightening face or a scary situation to embed it, to, for the memories to become coherent. Uh, it takes about 12 to 15 seconds for a positive emotion to be implanted or concretized. So 
The brain is set up to prioritize remembering the negative over the positive. So given that negativity bias, the, the fact that we are far more likely to recall negative experiences, different psychologists and doctors have over the years proposed different ratios of positivity to negativity we need to be flourishing and to maintain mental health. One guy, Robert Schwartz of the University of Pittsburgh, in a paper called Optimal and Normal Affect Balance, um, proposed that normal functioning, we need to experience 2.5 hours of positive emotions for every one hour of negative emotions. That's normal. It gets scarier, believe me. For optimal functioning, Schwartz's research said that we need to expend four hours of being positive for one hour of negativity if we want to not only flourish but maintain mental health and increase our chances of longevity. I'm struggling to think of how many people I know that meet this criteria. Uh, John Gottman, the very famous couples therapist, proposed that couples to stay together over a long period of time have to experience five times the amount of positive interactions over negative. So for every mildly irritated or curt exchange, there needs to be five pleasant uh, friendly exchanges if that couple wants to main, remain together because the brain tends to, again, give so much priority to negative experience and if you allow the negative interactions to build up over time, both members of the relationship will think negatively of each other. Now, Barbara Fredrickson did her own research and she concluded that we need three to one ratio, and that seems to be the number that comes up the most frequently. So the idea is to maintain any kind of flourishing, any kind of long-term mental health, to maintain the good benefits of positivity, we need to have a ratio of three hours of positive emotional states for every one hour of negative emotional states. If that's the case, many of us will have to put in a little bit of effort to up the positives to reach that three-to-one ratio. At this point, my warning comes in. It's very easy to think, wow, well, okay, just tell me how to be happy and let's move along with this. But there's a problem, which is that if we try to sidestep negative emotions, if we try to use any of the practices I'm going to talk about that increase the likelihood of positivity and flourishing, if we try to use that to repress or suppress or deny our sadness, our anger, our fear, our loneliness, our boredom, then we will fall into what's called spiritual bypass, which is a form of repression which actually backfires and makes things even worse than if we didn't do anything altogether. You see, all emotions not only are important, but emotions, if you don't feel and connect with and process your emotions by connecting and attending to them, if you try to get rid of natural flow of negative emotions, then what happens is, over time, the emotions that are repressed will lead to anxiety as they return, and if they 
continue to be repressed, then they lead to addictions. Addiction is the attempt to self-numb the return of repressed negative emotions, sometimes even positive ones, but largely negative ones. Anxiety is what happens when there's a discrepancy between the what we want to be like versus what we actually feel like, our emotions versus the stories we tell ourselves of who we have to be. And that discrepancy is filled up with anxiety. So if we increase the felt experience, fill it up with repressed negative emotions, then there's going to be a war between the fact that we feel sad, feel depressed, lonely, disconnected, bored, purposeless, and the story that we tell ourselves we have to be. So we don't want to repress. We don't want to use any of these practices to override the very important, necessary stage of feeling each negative emotion as it arises. The purpose of positivity is not to get rid of negative emotions, but it's to find all those times when we're in neutral, when we're in neither, and lift those up as much as possible to positive. So I want to say that again. Do not use any of these practices if you've gone through a relational breakup and you're feeling sad. Do not try to make yourself happy. <laughs> the reason you're feeling sad is to process the loss. If you're, you're being harassed, mistreated, if you read anything in the newspaper and you feel angry, do not try to use these practices to make yourself feel happy. It's only when you are in a rather neutral state and you are bored but not you know, negative emotional state where you want to lift up your mood into what could be called a positive, relaxed, connected, broadened state where you can really see the world, really feel optimistic about new possibilities, walk, want to move towards new challenges and new opportunities, then is when we use these practices. So does everybody, are you all willing to sign now the, the CODIS? So I will not use any of these practices to suppress my negative emotions. Okay, good. Practices that don't raise your positivity or make you flourish. Watching TV, sad to bring that news, but the University of, of Texas found that the more TV you watch, the more your mood actually goes down, not up, because you're not actually making real connections in your life with actual people, and you're not adding any sense of purpose to your existence. Financial stresses, lack of social support networks, isolation, work with excessive demands. Retirement has been linked with depression and negative emotional states, as well as addiction to mood-changing substances. So if you're trying to find happiness by retiring, watching TV, and eating a lot of crackers, while you order food, order stuff off of the shopping network, it won't work. <laughs> so what does work? Well, here's some of the behaviors, and then I'll talk about the meditation, and then we will do the meditation. So, connecting with friends activates the right anterior cingulate cortex, puts up the level of serotonin in the brain, 
lifts up your mood. It's as if you've taken a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, i.e. Prozac. Embodying practices such as uh, dance and yoga, they pull awareness away from the ventromedial default network, which is all the scary thoughts about you, what's going to happen to you in the future, what do other people think about you, why are other people making more money than you. All of those thoughts we detach from when we become embodied and pay attention to the present moment. Actually, this caught me completely off guard. I didn't even want to believe it, but apparently all those people that are into uh, essential oils and aromas, <laughs> when you're wrong, you're wrong. And I, they were right. Studies show that essential oils can deactivate the amygdala. So we all go home and buy lavender and just pump it into our living rooms. Cardiovascular exercise, of course, endorphins that are released by 20 minutes of cardio activate the opioid receptors near the nucleus accumbens and you feel really fucking great. <laughs> Immersion in nature activates the right hemisphere, not just the anterior cingulate, but all of the right hemisphere lights up, increases uh, mood. Uh, Connecting with animals, I went the other day and I uh, looked at some kittens because I want to adopt another cat for my, uh, for my cat, Bertha, and uh, who I call Rickety Chicken, but at the vet she's known as Bertha. <laughs> so I wanted to get into a little kitten and I felt instantly great. I was just in a normal mood, but playing with kittens all over me, they're like... Yes, there goes my Dharma Punk's image completely out the window, <laughs> as if there was any left. But anyway, those are some activities. Any task positive activity, gardening, if you're the kind of guy that likes to do things with engines, I suppose, I, from, on a biological basis, I have nothing in common with those guys. The guys that look over you know, motorcycles and look at them and find something interesting. <laughs> But they seem to be deeply at peace while they're doing that. So that's a task positive thing. Some people do, you know, sculpting, pottery, uh, hand, uh, woodwork. You can tell from my voice, none of these things I find remotely attractive. But if you did them, they would all be great because they would fall under the rubric of task positive. You wouldn't switch on the ventral medial. You wouldn't go into the default mode network. You wouldn't activate your amygdala, therefore, and you'd be happy as a clam, hours passing by as you worked on that engine for some reason. Those are some of the activities that will increase positivity, but now let's talk about the meditation. All meditation falls into two categories, insight and concentration. Insight meditation is what is used to connect with emotions, to create a safe container, to feel whatever emotional states arise. So every single... Um, uh, emotional state has a home in insight meditation. Minsight views everything that arises, every experience with non-judgmental, complete awareness without any cri um, criticism, without any attempt to get rid of it. 
Insight practices are for processing negative emotions, and it's a very powerful tool. On the other hand, concentration, and I'll list a bunch of concentration practices, those are the practices for deactivating stress, reducing ideation, thinking, and cultivating calmness, tranquility, and positive emotions. The Buddha said the point of concentration is to get to a place where we are both experience sukha, happiness, and pasadi, tranquility. That's the point of the concentration meditations. Concentration meditations involve things like, and they're often found in cognitive behavioral therapies, where we, one, progressively relax the muscles in the body which deactivate the stress setting of the sympathetic nervous system and that has a tendency to deactivate negative emotional states where we change the breath, long exhalations, that tends to as well deactivate at the SNI. Where we practice metaphrases which pull attention away from negative triggering thoughts and instead fill the mind with thoughts that activate a sense of ease, a sense of peace. And then we will end with meditations that fall under the Buddha's category of themed recollections or reflections. And this is one of the most undertaught and but useful tools the Buddha offered, which is bringing to mind images and experiences that activate states of positivity that are literally selected to change our framework, our worldview from negative to positive or from, uh, to cultivate a sense of um, confidence, sada, as the Buddha called it. So I'm going to lead a meditation that's specifically geared to increase not only your positive outlook, but hopefully to move you towards flourishing in your life. So thank you for listening to that. And as always, come to a very relaxed position. See if you can maintain a relaxed but decent alignment, which is simply try to keep your head from slouching in front of your chest. And one way to do this is simply, if you have that tendency, just gently tilt your head back like you're looking at a very tall building, which means, you know, like slightly lifting the chin up and the back of the head tilted. And just tilting the head back just a little bit, 10 degrees tends to make it very easy to keep the head in line with the shoulders and the shoulders in line with the hips. If throughout the meditation you feel physically uncomfortable and need to move, just ask yourself how could 
you move in such a way as to not create a sound to disrupt anybody sitting next to you and just assume they can hear pretty much anything. So try to move, if you must, in a very, very quiet way so that even you don't hear the sound and they couldn't possibly. If at any point you're just struggling during the meditation, just relax, stop what you're doing and just sit comfortably. Try to release any sense of having to do or get anywhere or accomplish anything. All of these practices are just meant to be taken up in the spirit of gently moving into an experience rather than learning by force or effort. You pick up all of the benefits of practice over time and relaxing into it rather than trying to achieve anything. Definitely relieve yourself of any tendency to criticize or judge or evaluate. You can use that if you must anywhere else in your life, but in your meditation practice should be the safest time for you internally where you absolutely refuse to judge yourself in any way. Absolutely, you are doing absolutely nothing wrong at this moment in time. You're not consuming the world's resources. You're not harming anyone. You're not acting aggressively. You're cultivating peace. So what you're doing is absolutely blameless and skillful. So there's absolutely no value or legitimacy to criticizing yourself in your practice. Taking a moment to reflect that you are in a space that is as safe as you will probably find. No one here will judge, criticize you, evaluate you, demean. So just relax and just be in whatever body, whatever posture. Just release any tendency to feel the need to be on guard and vigilant. How does it feel to be able just to relax and just be without needing to be alert in any sense of what other people might think or do. Taking in that you were safe.
So let's take three breaths and try to cultivate a nice, relaxed breath. So take a full in-breath and hold it. And then breathe out in a long, smooth, relaxed way through the mouth. Another full breath filling up the chest and then a long, relaxed out breath. A third in-breath, and then release. And allow your breath now to go to a really settled, natural rhythm, making sure that each out-breath is complete. The longer and smoother the out-breath, the more we start to deactivate the vagal nerve and the sympathetic nervous system. We're telling the reptilian brainstem that we are safe. Now that we've found a good breath, we're going to use it to relax the body. So starting with the area in the front of the forehead, just imagine what it would feel like if you could breathe in and feel that area. And then as you breathe out, imagine the entire area of your forehead relaxing with the out-breath. So the in-breath brings awareness and the out-breath releases every muscle, every felt contraction. So let's take three breaths into the forehead, feeling on the in, relaxing the forehead on the out. Two. And three. And then moving down to the eyes. Breathing in, feeling the eyes if they're settled and the micro muscles around the eyes. And then as you breathe out, Settling the eyes and softening the micro-muscles so that the eyeballs feel like two balls floating in a puddle of water.
Continuing down to the mouth and the jaw, breathing in, feeling especially the muscles around the mouth and the jaw. And then as you breathe out, relax, release any clenching. Bringing awareness to the middle of the throat. Just feeling what it might be like to breathe into the throat. And then as you breathe out, relaxing any tightness there. You can think a very soft relax as you breathe out. Or you could just think re as you breathe in and relax, as you breathe out. So bringing awareness into the left hand. As you breathe in, feel energy moving up from the hand to the arm, to the elbow, all the way up to the shoulder. And as you breathe down, relaxing the shoulder, letting it fall heavily, releasing any muscles, Just as you reach the culmination of the breath, relax all the fingers and the palms of the left hand. And then breathe in again, moving up with the breath from the hand to the arm to the elbow to the shoulder. And then back down as you breathe out, relaxing and letting the arm fall even heavier. And one more. So at this point, I'm just going to let you continue in silence for a while. So relax next the right arm if you feel so inclined, and then breathe into different areas of the body, such as the sternum, the belly, up and down the legs, the back. And to see how much of the body you can use the breath to relax.
So at this point we're going to do some metta, which is repeating a phrase associated with wishing or setting intentions towards peaceful states of being. So bring to mind an image of yourself and hold it in the area of your internal experience where you see memories, daydreams, some people right behind the eyes, some people vaguely behind the forehead. Just hold an image of yourself. It could be today or at a period of time when you were vulnerable in your life. Whichever feels more appropriate. And while you hold your image, we'll select a phrase that feels resonant. Any phrase that sets an intention for developing peace, feelings of safety, feelings of being loved, feelings of being worthy of ease in life. So while you hold your image, you might say in your mind, may I feel peaceful or may I feel safe and loved. May I feel connected. May I feel lastingly peaceful. Or a simple phrase like, I love you, keep going. And just direct this wish to your image. Do not feel compelled to use any of the phrases I just expressed. You can come up with your own phrase that feels appropriate and right for you. Whatever phrase you use, you can take two strategies. One, just think the phrase as your mind starts to wander. Or B, with every out-breath or every other out-breath, in your mind, just think the phrase. So, in-breath, and then out-breath, I love you, keep going.
So let go of your image and bring to mind someone or some being who has expressed kindness to you in some fashion. Someone who's been caring, accepting, someone who's made you feel welcome or safe. Hold their image and repeat whatever phrase you just used in your meta practice towards yourself. So hold their image, breathing in as we breathe out. May you be happy. Breathing in, breathing out. I love you, keep going. And see if you can visualize them looking straight at you with a gaze, an expression that suggests acceptance, welcoming, benevolence, compassion. So let go of the image of the person that exemplifies acceptance or care or connection. Bring to mind an image of something that you do that brings you joy. Some skill you've picked up. It could be riding a bike. gardening, swimming, taking a walk in a park, something that doesn't involve consuming or purchasing, an activity that's always or generally fairly available. Something we're grateful for in our life that's skillful. Buddha called this kaganusati practices of, gen of gratitude. If you can hold an image for 12 seconds, 
which would be roughly three or four breaths holding the image, for instance, an image of floating in water, or an image of sitting in a park, or relaxing in the sun, drinking a warm cup of tea. Just hold that image for three to four breaths, let it sink in. Remember, we have to work on sinking in positive reflections. And now bringing to mind something that you do that in some way benefits others. This is what the Buddha called Sila Nusati, reflection of anything you do that is towards the benefit of others or harmless at the very least, but reminding ourselves that we are all interconnected, our actions have results, bring to mind any activity, your art, your work, your caring, your compassion, an image of something that you do that is beneficial towards someone else, and just hold that image. activating the social circuits of the brain. And now, as we are about to reach the end of the meditation, drop any image in your mind. Just gently tilt back your head and let a unforced, soft Mona Lisa-like smile on the inside of your mouth 
Just greet this moment with openness, acceptance, presence, drinking in all that's available to you right now, broadening your response so that anything is possible. And then whenever you're ready, slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you and see if you can integrate sight into this embodied awareness. Whenever you are ready after that, feel free to look around the room. But remember, sight is such a dominant sense that it's very easy to lose awareness of your embodied state. So you want to bring that awareness with you. So thank you for your practice.